Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is con. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. and welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. With over 30 fiction and non-fiction book publishing credits and hundreds of magazine articles, he covers the worlds of pop culture, comics, high adventure fiction, movies, music, business strategy, and more. Author of Star Trek, a comics history, he read 900 Star Trek comics, so you wouldn't have to. It's Alan J. Porter! Hi, how are you, sir? I am good. I don't think I can match that intro. That is awesome. Thank you very much. But point of order, though, it was only 600 Star Trek comics. Not oh, 900. only 600? Oh, okay. I'll fix that in post. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for carving out the time to uh, come on and, and watch an episode and talk with me about it. Uh, we actually met this past summer at Dragon Con. Like, yeah. What is your involvement? Uh, have you done Dragon Con before? No, I. Yeah, um, I hadn't actually. That was my first Dragon Con and it was awesome. I've been trying for, oh God, probably four years of applying before they graciously let me in this year. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> um which and it was great i had an awesome time and it's definitely going to be as long as they'll continue to have me back a, a regular on my uh each year now i think um it yeah. was just a yeah it was just an awesome time I, I i've been to a lot of the big comics conventions san diego we, mm. we went to san diego like every year for about 11 years oh, new wow. york um and i don't know dragon con was just so different i mean it was just crazy what was it 80,000 people, somebody told me this yeah. year. I, to, um, the wife and I have been going to Heroes Con in Charlotte for right. a long, long time. And yeah. so we kind of thought like, oh, that's that's yeah. a convention, which it is. It's one of the biggest conventions yeah. on the East Coast. But yeah. Dragon Con is a whole nother ball game. Like they take over it's, downtown Atlanta. It's a completely, I mean, it's it's the same sort of people, but you're not all in one convention hall, as you said, you're like spread over. Um, and I spent a lot of time because I had a table up in the in the vendors room. So spent a lot of time up in there. And for that to be in like a completely separate building, I was like, nobody's going to come up here. But it was like steady traffic. I sold out all the books I took. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it was just, um, just amazing. Uh, and just a completely different vibe. Very open, very friendly. I mean, the other conventions are, are, are friendly too, but I don't know. There was just... All my friends have been saying, you've got to come to Dragon Con, you've got to come to Dragon Con. And now I'm like, yeah, now I know why, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah, it was really, so it was great to meet you there. It was great to do the Star Trek panel as well. So, yes. uh, yeah. so funny story uh, sort of surrounding how I got there. Um, the wife and I went to actually go to a different panel. I think it was a panel focused on the psychology of the Joker, which 
turned out to be quite a hot ticket because we were in line for it. And as we got up to the door, someone came out and said, sorry, folks, we are beyond max capacity. We can't we we cannot right. let anybody else in the room. And we were like, oh, OK, well, there's about a billion other things we could catch. Where else can we go? What else can we see? And I was like, well, next on the list for me was the Star Trek comics. I was like, all right, well, they just started. Let's head over there. And we did. And I got there a few minutes after you guys had started. Right. And it was so interesting because you were there with uh, two other uh, comics professionals and there was no moderator. And (laughs) as we were sitting there, my wife, my wife leaned over to me. She goes, you know. If we had been here at the start, you might have been able to jump up there and moderate <laughs> this thing. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, normally when you get this invite, if you're the moderator, it says on your, you know, your invite, you're going to moderate. The, and the three of us got there and it's like, well, who's moderating? It's like, well, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's, <laughs> it's like, okay. So it's so funny. Yeah. So, uh, you know, part of. Part of my uh, reason for having you here today is is actually selfish. I was wondering if you could put in a good word for me uh, with Garrett Wong <laughs> and see if we could get, I can't, get me to he moderate. He probably doesn't even know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, for, for fans who are anywhere close to uh, the Atlanta area, if you're, if you're looking for a good Trek con experience, Dragon Con's a great way to go. They've got so much there to offer the fans. Um, and I had an absolute blast. But I wanted to get into one of the things that they had uh, you there for was because of your work with the book, Star Trek, A Comics History. So without giving away the farm, obviously, people, if you're if you're a Star Trek fan, if you're a fan of comic books and comic book history, do yourself a favor, get this book. It is really great, and I'm using it uh, as a, it's a very valuable tool for me in prepping this show. Um, what was the genesis? What was the thing oh, that kind okay. of like? Um, so actually, this this book came out because my I'd actually just done a book on the history of James Bond comics. Yes, um, for the same publisher. Yeah, and the publisher called me up one day and said. We had such a great time doing the James Bond ones. Um, do you want to do one on Star Trek comics? And I was like, I'm not really that much of a Trekkie. <laughs> I'm not really that sure. And then he said, oh, okay. He said, well, think about it. So after we put the phone down and I'm sat and I'm staring around my office, and um, there was a couple of models of the Enterprise. There was a couple of com badges. There was a triple sitting on the edge of my desk. <laughs> and I'm thinking... You know what? Maybe I am a bit of a Trekkie after all. Might be. <laughs> um, so I sort of emailed, called him back and said, yeah, let's do this. So he was like, okay, can you get it done in a year? And I'm like, that means I have to read every single Star Trek comic that's ever come out and write about it Ooh. in a year. And I'm like, yeah, I think we can do it. So um, yeah, that's basically what I did. I spent a year reading nothing but Star Trek comics um, and doing the research and then writing the book. And we got it done in a year. Um, wow that that's i mean folks so, i mean for anybody who hasn't gone through this book that sounds incredibly daunting just knowing just me having gone through the book once or twice like there's a lot in there well, I, I must admit when we started it i didn't realize that i was like you know okay there's the gold key ones and there's the the, the british ones i remember from because that's how i first discovered star trek i was the comics even before i ever saw the show right, right. um 
you know, so was the you know, okay, there's the British ones, there's the you know, the gold key ones, there's you know, DC did a couple, Marvel did a couple, you know. Yeah, and it was like, uh, no, it turned out, and then it was like, oh, and then there's the newspaper strips, and there's the power comics records, and there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's, and it was like, yeah, and it sort of ballooned to, like I said, 600 Star Trek comics. And it, we, we, when we did it, IDW had only just got the license, so the book goes all the way up to the beginning of the IDW. Wow. Um, and I did actually reach out to IDW at the time and say, hey, I'm writing this book, and they would, they, they, I must admit, they just didn't didn't respond so it was like okay we've got to we've got to put a stake in the ground and say we're going to stop the book at this this point um, um so it doesn't cover the i mean they you know we did 600 that covered 1967 to whatever it was 2010 yeah um, and, then, and then they produced 400 books since yeah. then yeah the um, the 400th just, just came just out, came not out. A, yeah. a few months ago yeah yeah so yeah so if it included all the idw ones up to date it would be twice as long so uh yeah are the is that are there plans to no, no. no? okay <laughs> I, right. i've got so many other projects on the go now so uh, no, I, I figured yeah so, so uh, let me ask you because uh you know the comics have continued the franchise has continued now yeah. you know post 2010 uh you know 2017 rolls around and discovery starts up so and then right. not long after that was uh i think after that was picard picard yeah and then we've got Lower Decks and Prodigy and Strange, Strange New Worlds. Worlds. So, and it looks like we've got a couple more on the horizon. But um, what were your initial thoughts about New Trek as a whole, especially compared to the TNG era and the TOS era? Well, actually, funny story on that. Uh, my initial reaction was they're messing things up for us. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because your this show is going through Trek in chronological order okay. yeah so back in 2014 my wife was diagnosed with stage three cancer oh geez and it, prognosis wasn't too good and we were like what do we want to do to keep ourselves focused mm. um so we decided that we were, we were going to sit down together and re-watch the whole of star trek in star date order Ooh, okay <laughs> um to keep us focused so mm. we started with enterprise mm -hmm. original city series animated series the movie you know um next gen the movies but yeah. anyway thankfully jill uh my wife jill is in total remission has been for a long time now we got through it and that's fine. oh that's wonderful good but Great. as life came back that sort of slowed so we never actually quite finished our rewatch we are still i think we're just on season six of ds9 and season four of voyager now oh, okay. um so you know things slowed down once life got back to normal things slowed down of course so but we were going through star trek in star date order and then they come out with discovery and we're like oh crap <laughs> do do we not watch discovery until we've watched it and then it was just like well it doesn't matter and then of course picard comes out and it's like well that fits at the end and then strange new worlds and it's like oh sorry we'll just watch the new shows anyway <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so, you know people have asked me um because they know I'm, you know, doing the yeah, show yeah. and I'm doing it in a very particular order. And they said, you know, have, has this screwed things up for you? I was like, not yet. <laughs> Give it time. Give We're it getting time. close. <laughs> but I've said, uh, you know, part of part of what I'm doing is, you know, between I, I basically do 20 episodes of a podcast at a time, right. a, a season, quote unquote. Um, and then I take, you know, usually two or three weeks off and then get right. back into it. Um, but with discovery, uh, spoilers out there for discovery, 
you know, after season two, yeah, we don't, <laughs> we, don't <fine. laughs> we don't see them for almost a thousand years. So it's going to be really weird going. It's going to be a hard stop on yeah. discovery and then right into strange new worlds. Um, but the fun thing about that is way down the road, Michael Burnham's going to come bursting through the sky, <laughs> yeah. crash land and go, computer, scan for a life sign. And they're going to go, life signs detected. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually really looking forward to that moment because that moment really paid off. I, I feel like that was a, you know, we we follow we follow Michael Burnham for <laughs> the duration and, you know, you know, everything that she goes through really um ended up selling that moment of you know the the dire the direness of the situation and everything that was happening leading up to that with the red angel and you know this that and the other thing i'm getting ahead of myself but here we are we're less than a handful of episodes into season one yeah right at the beginning and i was wondering you know since you did just rewatch this recently um what were your initial thoughts uh, jumping back in and watching this again? Did it did it hit differently in light of everything that's come it in did. New Trek? Um, yeah, it did. Uh, it was very interesting because I said said to Jillis when I went back and rewatched it, it was like going back and watch, rewatch watching a, and rediscovering a completely new show yeah. because the tone and track that this discovery may changed. Yeah, so much certainly from season one to season two, and then as you said, season two onwards, it's literally you know another time zone, yeah, uh, time frame. Um, yeah, because I'm we're not gone back and rewatched them at all, we've just been keeping up with it. So to go mm. back to season one was like, wow, this is like rediscovering a whole new show. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can when we get into the episode, but one of the things that struck me about this episode in particular, it's a very Star Trek episode, yeah, yeah. For sure. I, it ticks all the Star Trek boxes. And I that was not my memory because Discovery is the season-long story arcs. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was not expecting that. Then I was like, you could actually come in and pretty much watch this at this particular episode and have no real knowledge of what happened prior because they do a really good job of setting the groundwork and summarizing it without hitting you over the head with it. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was very pleasantly exp- surprised going back and rewatching it um and again maybe we'll get into this in a bit more but again some of the character interactions and stuff it's like knowing where these characters are going and knowing what's in store for them added a whole new depth to some of the interactions here and i don't know whether i don't know whether they'd already mapped those out Mm. or not or whether i'm just projecting stuff that i know back onto the characters at this point exactly you know looking looking at um the vulcan hello and the battle of the binary stars which is the two part the two part premiere of the entire series um you get this sense of that friendship that uh mentor mentee mother daughter relationship between michael burnham and philippa giorgio and then you know upon first watching this and you see captain gabriel Lorca. he's he's more he's deeper he's darker than kirk he's not quite as flamboyant as say somebody like Riker. um he's actually more i feel like he's more stern than picard and if you know if you if you recall um encounter at farpoint like 
Picard's not exactly a very nice guy at the beginning. Like he's no. kind of a jerk, <laughs> but you can see that Lorca is fully committed. He, he is a, he is a man at war. Yeah. And he's a military man. Yeah. Yes. He's got that. And I've always described Picard as the soldier sailor. So right. he's got that very militaristic type air to him, but it's an, it's an older, it's an older air. Whereas Lorca is sort of a boots on the ground military, almost a grunt who just right. happens to be in command. Um, but yeah, we get some really fascinating interactions with Burnham now being thrust in this into this role of infamy and reconnecting with a few people like Saru. Yeah. And then becoming ostracized yet uh gawked at pretty much by the entire crew of the discovery and uh before we get too much deeper into this it's such a great episode it is a great episode it yeah. really is good there's a lot to talk about yes uh before we go too much further let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our patreon supporters rev j jerry antimano cosmic crit kitty b and david willett Alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Discovery is no longer a science vessel. It's a warship. If we're gonna win this thing, we have one chance to get it right. We received a distress signal. We told you we'd be ready when you called, and we are. Go. Open containment plan's not a good idea. Collision is imminent. Shields up! Star Trek Discovery. Burnham receives a parcel with the will of Captain Georgiou, but can't bring herself to open it. Saru is unhappy with Burnham's presence aboard Discovery. The crew conducts a simulated battle with the Klingons and loses. Lorca assigns Burnham to study the creature from the Glen, a giant tardigrade which destroyed a dozen Klingons, and find a way to use it as a weapon. Starfleet Admiral Cornwall orders discovery to the Dilithium mining colony Corvan II, which is under Klingon attack. Corvan's workers extract 40% of the Federation's Dilithium, which is needed for traditional subspace jumps. Stamets is reluctant to make such a long jump using the spore drive. Lorca suggests that he proceed by trial and error. When the spore drive is activated, discovery nearly collides with a star. Whoa. That was close. <laughs> the tardigrade reacts madly during the jump. Lorca threatens Stamets and forces him to continue the journey to Corvan, playing the distress call from the colony over the ship's internal comms for the entire crew to hear. Lorca sends Commander Landry to keep Burnham's research on track, and Landry attempts to sedate the tardigrade, which she names Ripper, to cut off its claw. It kills her. <laughs> On Takuvma's stranded ship, Klingon leader Call bribes Takuvma's desperate followers with food to earn their loyalty and leaves Valk to die in the wreckage of the Shinzo. With the help of the reactions of Saru's threat ganglia, Burnham becomes convinced that Ripper was acting in self-defense. After learning about the reaction of the tardigrade to the jump and its symbiotic connection with the spores, Stamets and Burnham transport the creature to engineering. The tardigrade connects to the spore drive and interfaces with the navigation system, 
acting as a supercomputer to calculate navigational coordinates. Discovery successfully makes the jump to the Corvan 2 colony and destroys the enemy ships, then disappears. Sneaky, sneaky, sir. Meanwhile, Laurel, a Klingon who is secretly loyal to Vok, promises a way for them to win the war for the House of Takuvma. She tells him that the matriarchs of the House of Mokai are ready to help, but that he must sacrifice everything. Meanwhile, after the jump, Burnham visits the creature, which appears to be ill. Tilly persuades Burnham to open the package from Giorgio. Burnham discovers that Giorgio bequeathed her a family heirloom, her telescope. Well, so, like you said at the top, this episode, in the midst of uh, the first truly serialized Star Trek show, this one actually stands apart in that it's kind of a second jumping on point. Like, if you missed episodes one and two, you can jump on right here. And they sort of catch you up to what happened, and the plot really dives in with everything that's going on. Um Honestly, I love the moment where she's riding on the prisoner transport. This is in the episode last week where she's riding on the prisoner transport and they say, oh, 2000, you know, some 2000 lives. And Burnham knows the exact, exact number. number. Yes, that yeah. is, I think, you know, more even more than seeing the battle, the binary stars when she rattles off that number accurately without a second's thought you can see exactly the toll that that whole chain of events has had on Michael. Yeah, I, and actually, and again, I think it's the previous episode, but when she is in the in the, the room and Tilly walks in and she says, what's your name? And she says, Michael. And she says, oh, the only other female Michael I ever heard is that, you know, that can't be you, can it? And she just turns and looks at her yeah. and then turns her head back. It was like, okay, awesome. So, yeah. Uh, but talking about this being a, a good starting point, for me, when the... The, the show Discovery started, it was like, as much as I love Michelle Yeoh, it was like, hang on, this first two episodes were about a completely different ship. Where yeah. is Discovery? There, yeah. there is no USS Discovery in the first two episodes. Uh -huh. um, and then three is her arriving on the Discovery. But with this one, for me, I felt this one is where Michael Burnham's story really starts. Yeah, this yeah is you're absolutely right. Her, her journey with Discovery starts with this episode. And I think you could start watching Discovery with this episode and not really miss out on much. Yeah. Because everything else that's happened beforehand gets referred to either in this episode or in episodes to come. And you could catch up pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, you may not get some of the nuance, but I think this is a great, I know it's only four episodes in, but this is a great soft reboot of, of Discovery. Yeah, absolutely. It's just kind of, you know, and I think there were some issues with because it was not only the first Star Trek show that we've had in over a decade since right. Enterpri since Enterprise ended, um, but it was the first Star Trek show in this streaming platform. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there were issues of distribution in other countries and some people may not have been getting it right away. Uh, still aren't, yeah. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. This is kind of a really great jumping on point. If for some reason you missed the first two or three episodes, you can, you can grab this one and jump right in. And yeah. it's absolutely wonderful. Um, let's talk for a moment about the interactions between uh, Burnham and Lorca, 
because we really get a sense of Lorca's driving uh, force, you know, that he, that he, that he is this driving force of, look, we're at war. You can either get on board and do what I'm telling you, or there's a shuttle waiting for you. Or, yeah. or in his case, there's an airlock waiting for <laughs> you. <laughs> he seems very much like, hey, j- jump in or walk the plank type of guy. Um, you, as a, as a author and as someone who has worked close with publishers, which, uh, you know, those personality types uh, tend to be very driven, very, uh, let's get this job done no matter what. Have you had any interactions with anybody that sort of reminds you of the personality of Captain Orca <laughs> that that you're willing to say, <laughs> um, not quite so much because he's a very I'm, I'm you know and I, I was in the Merchant Marine, which is a little bit like being on a starship, but never 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 in the military. So um, he, I mean, he is very much a the ends justify the means, yeah, military commander. A lot of the other commanders, even if, when they get into military situations, they have a moral compass. Right. It comes across here as not really having a moral compass other than we have to win the war. I, I do have a question about Lorca being the captain of the Discovery. Yeah. That doesn't really work because constantly they reference the fact that Discovery's mission is a scientific vessel. Mm. You know, I mean, there yeah. was a whole thing that Stamet said, this whole vessel was designed around my discovery, my my theories. Right. So, you know, that whole vessel, the Discovery and the Glen were designed around proving the, the mycelial drive concept. Yeah, yeah. The scientific I... vessels. So it made me wonder, and I don't think it's ever addressed, and I'm sure somebody corrects us if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's ever addressed. Was Lorca the original captain of the Discovery, or was he put in charge of the Discovery after the war broke out? It's like we need somebody who will push this scientific discovery through because it will give us a military uh, a military advantage a strategic advantage therefore we need a military guy who's going to push it through no matter what and he was put in charge of discovery yeah I, I don't see him as being the original captain of, of the scientific research vessel right i'm inclined to agree with you there on the latter uh that you know uh, after the battle of the binary stars and war has begun I think for one reason or another, either, hey, they're working on a thing that's going to turn the tide of this war, or we've got a bunch of scientists out there floating around. We need you to crack the whip a little bit and make sure yeah. that, you know, push come to shove, we've got more backup in case right. things go south. So with with you, with you in command, we, it'll we'll make that happen. Either, either or. But I think, yeah, I think absolutely. I think Cornwall, and of course, this, you know, puts the cart in front of the horse a little bit. But, you know, as we go on and we see the relationship of Cornwall and Lorca, yeah, you can tell that she was probably in a position, if I had to guess, she's probably the, she's probably the one that got him the position. Um, and that their personal relationship, um, be it this Lorca or the other Lorca <laughs> yeah. uh, probably led to him taking command of discovery. And honestly, it was probably, it was probably best because I mean, knowing, knowing in terms of creative endeavors that necessity is the mother of invention, you've got somebody at the helm that says, Hey, this is a necessity, make it happen. 
a lot of other captains probably would not have taken that route. They right. might have taken a more a softer approach, a more gentler hand. Um, but in times of war, this was the order of the day. Get on board or get out. Yeah. So much so that he specifically positioned Michael to through different chain of events wind up on discovery. And again, this this happened, you know, in the last episode, but we can see that this version of Lorca <laughs> is manipulator. He's he's, oh, he's a yeah. mover and shaker. He's going to make stuff happen. And if he can't make it happen, he will force other people to do it for him under under the guise of, hey, I'm in command, shape up or ship out. Yeah, I, I think that's also reflected in his chain of command that basically, the, to a large extent, Landry, the security officer, is really his first officer because those two work really closely together and have the same drive. And he goes around Saru, who is his, his nominal first officer, but I think he, had, he, leave, he leaves Saru to run the ship. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, he and Landry are focused on the the military aspects and the weaponizing and stuff. And, and again, manipulate it. You talk about manipulating the, the the bit where you know he and Stamets have the, you know the you know you're not going to use my stuff for for military purposes. And he was like, well, tough. This is now a military campaign, and you're on a military ship. We own it. Yeah. Um. And, and again, you know, Stamets says, you know, well, you know, I'm going to take my take my toys and leave. And he's like, leave, but I'm keeping your toys. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, it is a great scene. And then, of course, he uses the the audio of the tracks um, miners piped throughout the ship. Yeah. Um, really, just to get at Stamets, but also to make everybody else realize what it is they're going for. And I, I, I think one of the, you know, the things I really like about this this episode, we talked about it, not it, it being a soft reboot sort of starting point. But it's also got that two really great tra- tropes throughout it that, you know, the, the monster is not necessarily a monster if you look at him from it look at it from a different perspective you know yep. um and the, you know we have to go help people in trouble yeah the, yep. the, the you know the, they're the two standard trek tropes and they're both really well interwoven throughout this episode um, yeah uh, and yeah um, I love Lorca as a character particularly know knowing what's going where it's going right um <laughs> and as I said earlier on for me knowing where it's going I saw bits in this that were either intentional or unintentional of like oh okay that that line of dialogue has an extra present to it has an extra meaning to it because I know where this his story is going yeah um yeah so yeah, you're um, absolutely right I, I, I think I, uh, I miss I miss Jason Jason Isaacs in Star Trek I wish they'd figured a way of keeping him on board as oh, yeah. a walker of some variety um you're within, absolutely right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think he was a fantastic addition to yep. the cast. Um, not not to say that the folks that came before weren't up to snuff. They turned in iconic performances. Yeah, um, iconic performances specifically in TOS, which set the stage for you know a lot of folks in the TNG era. Which I mean, it's not a secret. Patrick Stewart is a sh- classically trained Shakespearean actor uh-huh. <laughs> and he was, and the folks that were next to him on the bridge were able to go toe to, t- you know, yeah. pound for pound, toe to toe. They were able to stand right next to him. You had people who came from music backgrounds, who came from comedy backgrounds, who, uh, you know, just swung for the fences on everything they did. And they were able to stand right next to arguably one of the greatest actors of our age. Um, and then, you know, here getting into new Trek, 
we start off with a bang with Michelle Yeoh, who yeah. I, you know, I covered her resume a few episodes back. It is extensive and impressive. Like <laughs> they started bringing to be even more extensive and even more impressive. Yeah. Post, in the post last Star years. Trek. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. And it's been, yeah. it's been so fascinating to see before we move on from the general discussion about this episode, I wanted to ask you one more thing because talking about him, talking about the character of Lorca mm-hmm. being a, a manipulator of the folks that are around him. He, it seems like he's, and again, without alluding too much to what's coming down the road, but he seems like the type that will try manipulation at first and then resort to force. And I think one of the most interesting things, one of the most interesting tactics he uses here in this episode is to play the distress call over the comms. Yeah. And knowing that for, I'll only speak to, um, to this country, especially uh, like post Pearl Harbor and certainly um, during the Vietnam era, and the day of 9-11, the media portrayal to the people was so important in setting the stage for what came next. Do you have any thoughts about Lorca using the distress call to further his goals on Discovery? I think it was just a classic psychological move. Like you say, he's a psychological manipulator. He does that first. I mean, he did it with with Burnham. I mean, I think it was a really great thing to do, but he also did it, you know, like I said, he, he did it primarily at Stamets, but he did it for everybody. This is why we're on this mission. We've got to go save these people. Like you said, it was a media play. That's a great way of putting it. It was a media play. But he also did the same with, with Burnham when he, you know, he got her on board and didn't actually tell her what he wanted her to do. And she assumed it was because, you know, she could work with Stamets and engineering. And he's, he's like, no, I, you know, I needed the, the, the uh, I can never get this right. The, the xenobiologist, the yeah. xenoanthropologist is what I need. Yeah. I need you to go figure out what makes this creature tick. Yeah. And she was like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting. But also the fact that he reinstates her with no rank. So she yeah. is literally a nobody. She can't pull rank on anybody. She can't, you know, she she is, she and she knows she's completely dispensable, literally completely dispensable. Oh, yeah. Because she carries no rank. She's got no authority. She's got no place in the crew. Yeah. And as you said, the crew all like despise her and look at her as a freak and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, if, he, she, if she dies on a mission, fine. She fine. was sentenced yeah. to life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if yeah. he, puts, he puts her in a room with a dangerous animal and says, figure it out, the dangerous animal rips her apart. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, you know, I, yeah, he is an absolutely great manipulator and stuff. Is he a good captain? No. Is he the captain they needed at that point? Probably. Bingo. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In terms of in terms of movers and shakers, I think uh, not since Cisco have we seen someone who is so bent on getting the job done that they will go to any lengths and at the end of the day, raise a glass and say, I can live with that. Yeah. Um, You know, talking about people behind the curtain, uh, as we do every week, you know, much like this episode, there are movers and shakers in front of and behind the camera. So as we do every week, we ask the question, who do we blame? Uh, This episode was written by Jesse Alexander, uh, not 
the country singer, Jesse Alexander, um, who actually attended Sarah Lawrence College where he met and befriended J.J. Abrams. So there's a little backdoor into the franchise right there. Uh, His first credit was a screenplay for a video game in 1998 called Apocalypse, starring Bruce Willis. Which is so bonkers. I uh, I actually do. I actually fell down the rabbit hole a little bit, and I actually found a making of video of this game. I think they were just starting to use uh, mocap in video games, and there is a really quite humorous video of Bruce Willis running around a soundstage with a bunch of ping pong balls attached <laughs> to him. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Uh, but Jesse Alexander's first film was the screenplay for the 2002 film, Eight-Legged Freaks. Have you ever seen Eight-Legged Freaks? Nope, doesn't sound like my sort of movie. <laughs> Honestly, if you're kind, if you dig the creature features of like the 1950s, 1960s, Eight-Legged Freaks is a great throwback to those types of creature features. It's over the top and just ridiculous. It's kind of grab a drink of your favorite whatever and sit uh-huh. down and get ready to get ready to laugh. Honestly, <laughs> um, but then uh, his first TV credit was on 11 episodes of alias from 2001 to 2005 and of course uh would follow it up with episodes of heroes and hannibal uh but one of his interesting writing credits here was sergeant fury and his howling commandos from marvel comics uh specifically oh. uh shotgun opera are you familiar with shotgun opera i was no not- i am no i'm gonna have to look that one up on there i, I have the marvel unlimited uh Oh, do so you? I, yeah, so I have access to the whole back catalog. I'm going to have to look that one up and see, uh, see what it's like. Yeah, I remember reading, uh, I think Marvel Max did a Fury um, miniseries that was yeah. basically him talking into a recorder while he's sitting in a hotel room. And that was a really great, um, very gritty look at... That, that's the one that killed the Sergeant Fury movie because George Clooney read it and said, I don't want to be associated with this character. Oh, that I didn't know. Holy crap. Oh, you just you just melted my brain. That is a that is fantastic. I'm gonna have to look into that. (laughs) Um, But this is Jesse Alexander's uh, first work in the franchise, uh, not his last. So uh, we will see him again down the road. Uh, Jesse also wrote this with Aaron Eli Colite. Um, His first credit uh, was as an assistant to the producers of 49 episodes of Party of Five from 1998 to 2000. And then his first TV credit was five episodes of Crossing Jordan from 2004 to 2006. And then he also worked on te- 10 episodes of Heroes, which is probably okay. where he met Jesse Alexander. Uh, he also wrote for Marvel on Ultimate X-Men, uh, Volume 19, Absolute Power, amongst others. But uh, did you ever read any of the... Uh, the ultimate, any of the I, ultimate line? I did actually, um, I, uh, quite a bit of the ultimate Spider-Man. I have the ultimate fan, fantasy book. I, I had probably the first three or four volumes of the ultimate X-Men. I didn't get as far as volume 19. No. Yeah, I uh, that was where I was first introduced to Brian Michael Bendis's writing. Right. I uh, yeah, brought his work is great. I love yeah, he, he's that. just stellar, head, head and shoulders above the rest. And um yeah, that ultimate line, I think, really cemented him as sort of a comics writing, one of the more yeah. recent comics legends in terms of crafting his story. I think because largely his 
characters, their dialogue and inner monologue felt so real. He was able to really connect with that character and get that character to connect with the reader. They, they were yeah. very relatable. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah I really, I really, really like his stuff. Uh, yeah. Actually, Maury's earlier stuff before that, actually, I like his, uh, his independent superhero series powers was really good. And he does, he did a couple of really good um, crime novels when he was, he was also actually a cartoonist. So he actually did the art on a couple of crime stories as well as writing them. So yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of there's a you know it's so funny to listen to folks like Kevin Smith who yeah. uh, dabbled in comics and you know uh, had a foot fairly uh, firmly planted in Hollywood and listen to the thoughts you know early like late nineties early two thousands where Hollywood didn't want anything to do with the people who were making the books on a month to month basis. They wanted, they wanted the properties and they wanted to be able to cash in, but didn't want the help of the people who made the stuff. But nowadays, if you look at any, any Marvel movie, go through the credits. There is a section of consultants. Yeah. And thanks to, and special thanks thanks, to, and that list of consultants are the legends working on the books today. And, you know, Years ago, it wasn't it wasn't that way. Um, no. but yeah, so uh, for Aaron, this is his first work on the franchise. Uh, jumping ahead a little bit here, just to s- sort of show you the type of caliber of folks that are working on this series. In 2019, he actually helped develop Lock and Key uh, for Netflix uh, based on the IDW series. Did you read Lock and Key by any chance? I'm not a horror person, no, but that, I, it is, I heard it's, it's really good. That's uh Based Joe on Hill, Joe Hill stuff. Yeah. 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 I, you yeah. know, cause um, I, I was a big, I'm a, am a big uh, comic book fan from way back and my wife enjoyed them, but she didn't really read them until we got together. And then I said, Oh, Hey, there's this thing from, uh, you know, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. He wrote this book about this family called lock and key. And I gave her the first uh, trade. Like at the, like two or three weeks later, she was like, is there any more? I was like, what do you mean anymore? She goes, I'm done. I was like, done with what? She goes, the series. She had read everything. She devoured it. And I, yeah, because I mean, it, it would be easy to classify it as horror, but honestly, I don't think it comes off as horror. It comes off as more supernatural thriller, which is very adjacent to horror. Okay. But it's more of a magical, it's more of a magical suspense type thing as opposed to like blood and guts horror type thing. So if, okay. you're, if you're on the fence about it, I, I would highly recommend it knowing okay, well, that it is. Yeah, it's, yeah maybe it, I'll it's, give it another go. It's a, it's a good read. I, I, I enjoyed it. The show is um, a bit of a different beast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the but the book is really fantastic. Uh, so uh, this episode was directed by Olatunde uh, Osansami. Uh, we've actually uh, seen him before. Uh, his last work on the franchise was Short Trek, season two, episode five, The Girl Who Made the Stars, which I actually paired with the Vulcan Hello because I felt a uh, girl who made the stars made for a nice cold open to the Vulcan yeah. Hello. That's, um, I love those Short Treks. They are really good. Oh my gosh. Everyone I've talked to who is who is a fan, like, and has seen the short treks is just like, why won't they make more of these? I, yeah. I was like from your mouth to God's ears. Like, I, I don't know. Cause I, to be honest, I, I feel like they should let short treks 
be the fan accessible way to get fan material into the franchise, especially like young writers who are consistently putting out material, get some of these really interesting directors who have a great visual style. I've said multiple times on the show, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. He would be perfect for Star Trek. I, I don't know why someone hasn't said, Hey, come on, you know, with your creature effects folks and our folks and, you know, and our budget. <laughs> yeah. Here's an episode. Have fun. Um, you, you actually make a great point about the fans because it used to be Star Trek used to be one of the only shows that had an open pitch policy that yeah. you didn't need to be an agency writer. So you could pitch. So I actually pitched a DS nine and a Voyager script. Oh, did you really? Yeah. And the, the DS9 one was cool, but was not a good script for a, a wannabe first writer on Star Trek because it was too special effects heavy and stuff uh... like that. Um, but the DS, the Voyager script got up to consider. I actually got a copy back with the, all the right stamps on it that said, you know, for consideration to be discussed, blah, blah, blah. That's as far as it got. So it didn't wow. get beyond the the, the uh, consideration at the producers meeting, which was pretty cool. Oh, um, but if they had something like, short treks they could have probably done a hey you didn't make it for a full episode of this regular show but could you do a trial script for something like a short treks would have been a great way of bringing new writers in you're right um, yeah yeah it's a shame they don't seem to do that now with the new shows I, I i don't believe they do i'm not sort of plugged into that circle anymore but uh yeah but that was always one of the great things about star trek was that anybody could pitch a script and yep. um yeah the the story of ronald d moore yeah going on the the paramount lot tour and sliding the script to uh gene roddenberry's or was it roddenberry's assistant? yeah i think it was roddenberry's assistant who rolled her eyes and said okay look <laughs> go back make these changes blah 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 and then ended up doing it the right way and ended up being one of the big creative yeah. driving forces behind the camera for yeah. years for a long, yeah. long time yeah. um th those stories are now few and far between but i think yeah. uh i think you know with the connection to the community that star trek has nowadays in addition to the level of professionalism of fan films that have been made um a decent youtube search will show you yeah. some really fantastic stuff that's out there um, I, I don't, I don't, I think it would be really worthwhile to, uh, for, for, for Paramount, um, CBS, whoever's in charge to say, you know what, let's go ahead and start looking at some scripts. Um, especially yeah, I can say, I think short tracks would be a great, you know, yeah, not open up the full shows, but like, no, 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 just something for a, you know, a, whatever it is. Tw hey, hey can you, can you sure. give us, can you give us five to 15 minutes worth of yeah. story based on X and it can be a single character or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be a really good way to go. But you know, the last time we actually uh, talked about the girl who made the stars, that was on uh, episode 87 of this show. We actually discussed that with Erica LaRose and Mark Cartier from Shuttlepod. Uh, they were nice enough to come on and talk with me about that. Uh, in terms of guest stars, we've actually got a few appearances here this week from, uh, first off, Jane Brooke as Vice Admiral Katrina Cornwell. Um, her first appearance, um, her first credit, rather, her, 
Her first credit was in Superman Four: Quest for Peace, nineteen eighty-seven. She actually plays a teacher. I uh, and I, I hate to admit that yes, I have seen that movie several, on several occasions. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, yeah, all, all the comic book fans kind of look <laughs> at it and go, "Yeah, I've seen hey, it." Hey, back yeah. in nineteen eighty-seven, it was a comic book movie. We- <laughs> You watched everything that was a comic book movie. Exactly. It was slim pickings back then, for <laughs> hey, sure. I, I have the David David Hasselhoff, Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. movie on the shelf. So I, I can <laughs> So you're the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. I taped mine off of television. <laughs> I had that for a long time. But you know what? I was pointing that. I was like, hey, look. Look at the costumes. That was a precursor to stuff like Blade and Brian yeah. Singer's X-Men. Like, they were prepping for this thing. And, and if we didn't have... Nick Fury, if we didn't have Generation X, if we didn't have those few TV movies that came out, you wouldn't have what came later, which was the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, the Brian yeah. Singer X-Men, yeah. which would which if you didn't have those, you wouldn't have gotten Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man in 2008. It, it just wouldn't have happened. So right. it all kind of built on itself. But yeah. And then uh, her first TV credit was The Endless Game, a 1989 miniseries. Uh, she would also make appearances in the films Kindergarten Cop, uh, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and Gattaca. Uh, she would also go on to cement a pretty solid career with 103 episodes of Chicago Hope from 1995 to 1999 as Dr. Diane Grad. Uh, her performance uh, would actually gain her three SAG Award nominations. Uh, for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a drama series that was in 96, 97, and 98. And then she would appear as Maureen Robinson in The Robinsons, Lost in Space in 2004. That was a TV movie that was supposed to be a pilot for a series that never got off the ground. I think I actually Mm -hmm. found that floating around on YouTube somewhere. Um, It's not bad. I mean, it's early 2000s and you could tell that you know they didn't really have a whole lot going for it other than that but it was directed by John Woo you know really? from wow. yeah from <laughs> Face Off and uh you know uh Mission Impossible 2 and a whole slew of other things and uh co-starred along with Adrian Palicki from yeah. uh she was Wonder Woman for a minute she's on uh The Orville uh she's she's great so Ag- yeah Agents of Shield Yes, absolutely. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I knew I was forgetting another one. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it had all the pieces, but I've said it before. The fact that anything gets finished or gets greenlit, budgeted, finished and makes it to air is just shy of a miracle. So for everything that is out there, there's a dozen or more things like this that just fell through the cracks and just didn't happen. Uh, she would also go on to do four episodes of Boston Legal in 2004, uh, which her performance actually won her a Prism Award uh, for her four episode storyline. That was in 2007. And this is her first of 12 appearances in the franchise. So if you're if you're following along, let's count them down. Uh, we've also got Wilson Cruz as Dr. Hugh Colbert. His first credit was 19 episodes of My So-Called Life from 1994 to 1995. Uh, He would also get nominated for a Q Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Quality Drama Series for that performance. His first film was Nixon in 1995 uh, alongside um, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Uh, He would do 11 episodes of Party of Five. There's another Party of Five uh, 
folks who've uh, worked on Party of Five. That seems to be uh, another one that folks have regularly worked on uh, from 1999 to 2000. Uh, he won the Alma Award for Emerging Actor in a Drama Series in 2000 for his portrayal on Party of Five. And then he would do 19 episodes of 13 Reasons Why from 2017 to 2019. But this is his first appearance in the franchise. And I got to say of of the big stars in New Trek, he's one of the folks uh you know, sort of a journeyman actor who you might not recognize, but after watching him here as Dr. Kolber, and we'll see this as we go along, he has become a fan favorite and it's understandable why he is a fantastic actor in a role that was just, he was just made to play. I buy, I buy every shot of him as Dr. Kolber. And once we see the relationship between Culber and Stamets uh, come to fruition and really take a more prominent focus in the story. It just solidifies it even more that he is a fantastic performer in a fantastic role. Um, what so, so th this, this was actually one of the things when I said earlier about whether I'm actually putting stuff back sort of retroactively thinking about relationships that I know are going to develop. And then I'm looking at the dialogue here because yeah, the interchange between him and because I didn't realize this was actually his first appearance in Discovery. I just assumed he'd been oh you know, okay earlier on, um, and it was only when I was doing the research or something about this was the first time we met him, and I'm like, really? Because that interchange between him and Stamets had such a depth to it. Yeah, but I'm thinking, did it have a depth to it, or am I putting that on there because I know where that relationship's going? But the really? way he made that sarcastic remark about Stemmett showing emotion or God, God forbid you would actually do something that shows some emotion. <laughs> it's like, well, these two clearly know each other really well for him to make that sort of remark to a patient that he's fixing up. Right. There's obviously right. something there. And of course then there was something there. So I, that was either really great foreshadowing that they actually figured out where those two characters were going yeah, or it was just a happy coincidence. And I was just retroactively putting that level of meaning onto it. But either way, it was just a great exchange between them. And you you got that he had that, if you like, sort of, I'd love to see him and Dr. McCoy have a conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, because he, he had that sort of gruff bedside manner, but also he clearly cares for, because later on when you saw, or earlier when he was sort of with trying to treat Landry and he knew it was hopeless, you could see how torn he was about that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I thought it was uh, just for the few seconds I mean, he was probably on screen about 30 seconds or even. Yeah, not long. But he made a big impact in, in that in that time. So. Yeah, he really does. I, uh, you know, in looking at the structure of this, especially with scenes like you just mentioned, where there's a few moments, a few lines of dialogue between characters that implies so much depth that ends up paying off down the road. I got to look at folks um, like Aaron and Jesse who write things like this but when you look at their resume you see you don't see a lot of screenplays but you see a lot of serialized television heroes alias um yeah. that sort of thing and you're seeing and we're seeing a lot of the creatives come from um projects like that and comic book work a yeah. lot of comic book work too so we're seeing that they know how to craft a narrative in a single uh, in a single shot, but also how to 
set the stage for what's to come down the road. And that yeah. is such a that is such a specific skill because I, I see it in stand-up comedy because it's really easy for someone to take the stage once and have a good set. It's another thing to do it again next week and the uh -huh. week after and the week after and to constantly be crafting new material and to take that material and shape it into a narrative. So getting up there and telling a joke that works, that's great. Now we need you to build a five-minute set. Okay, you've got a five-minute set. How about 15? Uh -huh. how, about, how about 30? Can you feature? Can you headline? You know, you, you're having to build that stuff. And if you can't, if you can't build, well, I hope you're happy with doing 15 minute sets in a bar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a particular skill. In, I mean, this this episode sows a lot of seeds of stuff that's going to come. But there's a particular yeah. skill in putting something in that sows a seed, but in a way that if it doesn't grow, if it doesn't pay off, it's not just left as a dangling subplot. Yeah, because that quite often happens. You'll see that as they'll sow a seed. And for whatever reason, a different writer comes on or whatever, and it just never gets picked up. And you think, well, where was that going? Yeah. But to do it in a way here where if it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't feel forced. Right. It feels very natural. And there's a lot here that the other one is is like Saru and Burnham, their relationship in this episode. Is, I mean, oh, yeah. the look that, you know, when she gets in the turbo lift and Saru looks at her with that, you know, what, are you, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, he doesn't say anything. He just looks at her, but it's clearly what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> um and then you know she manipulates him to use his threat ganglia to figure stuff out yeah um you know but knowing where they're going and for me i'll tell you as far as discoveries are concerned saru for me is my breakout character i absolutely adore doug jones saru he, yeah. he is the star of the, of the series for me yeah uh, and that's and that's not and to even take here away very from... early very early on you know really his first full episode well you know he's in a couple of the other ones but mm -hmm. yeah just that building that that relationship and again what a lot of what is unsaid between them i think really plays well yeah here. absolutely you're absolutely right and and that's not to take away from anybody else that's on the show but when you're no. talking when you're talking about doug jones who and we covered his uh we covered his resume a few episodes back who has spent a large part of his career buried in prosthetics uh -huh. i think with the character of saru how he is able to emote through all of those prosthetics while turning in a performance that is so physical, uh, he, you're absolutely right. I, and again, not to take anything away from Sonequa Martin-Green or uh, anybody else on the show, but Doug Jones, this is Doug Jones' show. He he is yeah. so, he turns in such a powerful performance from right out of the gate all the way through season four, like yeah. at, at every turn. He he shows up and it, there is not a single phoned in performance from Doug Jones at all. And, uh, you know, my my hats off to him. The, that is a it's it's a tough enough job being in such a prominent role on a on a very visible project, let alone add weird boots gloves and <laughs> bury your head in prosthetics like i mean that that's that is tough from the word go and yeah it, doug jones just nails it out of the park every time well um alan let me ask you as we've been asking uh every guest the question um for our listeners that we answer every week is is this essential viewing if somebody is sitting down and watching star trek for the very first time is this one that they have to watch 
or can they skip it? I think I said earlier, I think this is the perfect soft reboot for Discovery. Yeah. If you want to watch Discovery and you're not, I would say as much as I like the first three episodes, I would say start with this one. Yeah. Yeah. Because this for me is, it, it, it feels like a Star Trek. The other is a, a good science fiction war story, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like Star Trek. This one to me is a Star Trek episode. It has all the hallmarks of a classic Star Trek episode. So I would say, yeah, this is, and again, if you just want a get a feel of what season one of Discovery is a lot like, you only want to pick one episode, I pick this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right there. I think a, uh, you know, trying to look at it from both sides, I think this episode is a great starting point moving forward. But I think with this episode, you could also take the three episodes prior and the three short treks prior and have a really nice contained journey of Michael Burnham from childhood to redeemed scientist because her at this point her officer days are done she's out of starfleet she doesn't even have a com badge but we see her take steps to become that respected scientist again because she figures it out and i i think she also gets some closure for what happened with her mother figure in Giorgio, and we don't see we don't see her mother in uh, the girl who made the stars, but we see her as a child um, in that vulnerable state where she first hears about the magic of the stars, and we kind of see her get set on that path, and then we see you know Giorgio's path begin with meeting Saru and bringing Saru into Starfleet, and then. You know, with uh, everything that goes on with uh, the Vulcan Hello, Battle of the Binary Stars, and, you know, winding up here, if they were going to do a Discovery movie, this is it. Between this episode and The Girl Who Made the Stars, that is the first journey of Michael Burnham. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this this episode is absolutely crucial if you're going to, if you're going to watch Discovery at all. If you're going to skip it, then okay, it's no big deal. But if you're if you're making if you're making the trek uh, through Trek, then this is an absolute must episode, uh, must see episode. So, uh, Alan, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on and talking with with me about this and nerding out and getting into some <laughs> of the nitty gritty behind the scenes. Um, do you have any final thoughts about? This episode, Discovery, New Trek, the franchise, your your, your experience here on the podcast. Any final thoughts before we start wrapping it up? I could still go on a lot more about this episode. So, uh, well, did we get did we get to all of your notes? Because I know you made some notes. Um, Actually, the one thing we didn't talk about. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Is the Klingons. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The Klingons. Yeah. you know, we talked to all about the subplots and stuff, but I love the Klingon subplot here. I know one of the big things that people don't like about Discovery when they said it is the fact the redesign of the Klingons and stuff like that. But I actually think it works. And I always remember when we were first watching the first season of Discovery when it came out, Jill and I, one of the things we kept kept saying was we were coming away from a lot of the episodes rooting for the Klingons, being more invested in the Klingon story than we were in the Starfleet story. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is one of the, the not quite so sort of four in this one, but particularly, and I'm going to butcher the names, um, the, the two lead characters. Um, Takuvma and Laurel? 
Uh, Vaught and Laurel. Oh, Vaught. Vaught and Laurel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, playing those parts underneath, like we talked about the prosthetics for Doug Jones, but they were under such heavy press. And again, so much was communicated just with eyes. I mean, the sexual tension between those two, yeah, grew through this, particularly that episode where they're, they're taking bits off the Senju's engine, and she says, "Should we uncouple?" Ah. And the look between the two of them, yeah. it's just like that was such a great piece of acting. But actually, looking at some of the reviews I did for this episode, I saw one of the complaints. It was interesting. One of the complaints everybody had was about the subtitles was the fact that they insisted that they spoke Klingon all the way through yeah. and everything was subtitled. Yeah. I sort of get that, but I'm an older guy with a wonky hearing in one of my ears from my Merchant Marine days. Mm-hmm. So I have the subtitles on TV all the time. Oh, okay. So I didn't find it slowed me down at all. In fact, I really liked the fact that they had a nice, elegant font and the subtitle was on screen long enough because they were as opposed to trying to keep up with some of the automatic subtitling. By the way, whichever automatic subtitling program that Paramount Plus use, it sucks. Um, Because when there's a fast interchange of dialogue, it can't keep up and it gets out of sync. Oh, jeez. Paramount Plus, get your your junk together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it didn't bother me that much. But yeah, I absolutely, this first season of Discovery, I absolutely adore the whole... Yeah, the, I'm not 100% sold on the redesign and the prosthetics, mm. but the the whole Klingon subplot, I think, is really good about the manipulation of them and the, the warriors using the religious people as a, an excuse to go to war. Yeah. And when they're at war, they back away from the religious folks because, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, you know, I, I know then, we actually kind of explored a little bit of that, like understanding that a lot of the visual aesthetics of Discovery come right from uh jj abrams work you know in the kelvin timeline but looking at season four of enterprise we Mm -hmm. see dealing with the augments yeah and uh you know the augment virus that ends up infecting a small group of the klingons and the fallout from that kind of ends up answering that some of the klingons look different than other klingons which leads to how they look in TOS. But this also kind of like sets the stage of like, oh, okay. So these Klingons weren't affected by that. And so that, and and they evolved in a slightly, yeah. 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 The thing that Worf won't talk about. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Yeah. Any, anything else from your notes? Um, Oh uh, yeah. I just have one other nitpick um, because I think we talked about anything. I I absolutely hated the line where they, when Lorca and Stemets were having their backwards and forwards and mm-hmm. Lorca's like, how do you want to be remembered in history? Do you want to be remembered alongside the Wright brothers, Elon Musk and Zephyrin Cochran? Oh, yeah. And whatever you think about Elon Musk, love him, love, love him or loathe him. I don't, never liked in Trek when they throw in contemporary references from the time that the the, the episode was made. Yeah. Because it, it never ages well. Yeah. Um, I... If they're going to throw in historical, because there was one in the previous episode where I think Stemmett said, "Oh, my uncle's in a Beatles reference back in a Beatles cover band, but he's not John Lennon." <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and then whoever he was talking to was like, "I don't get that reference," which I think was meant to be funny. But again, it was like, "Don't do that." I would go, you know, just throw stuff in that's related to Trek's yeah. timeline. It's all right referencing Zephyr and Cochran. Mm. But don't reference our history reference. It's it's such a yeah, it's such a weird it's a weird card to play 
Um, yeah. Because I'll I'll present this as sort of the flip side to that in that um, I think it's in that pilot episode of Strange New Worlds where um, Pike beams down to this planet where they are quite literally having an argument between two sides and he beams in he's like, hey, sorry to interrupt. See, you guys are uh, having a bit of problems. Our people on Earth had a second civil war and start showing stuff that was like from CNN. And that's one of those rare instances where I feel like something that was integrated that was modern actually worked. Right. But it's, but you're absolutely right. When they throw something in, it usually either doesn't age well or it divides the audience or something like that. But I mean, there's again, strange new worlds broke a lot of molds and broke a lot of rules, not even Star Trek rules. Like there's, yeah. I've said it before on the show, Strange New Worlds is better than it has any reason to be. Like it should, oh, it should not agree. be that good. <laughs> it should not be that good, yeah. 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 <laughs> but you're um, absolutely right. Uh, any Anything else before we before we go? Um, I don't want to like, okay, I'm going to, I found my nitpick notes. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, no, let's get well, into no, it. The other one, that, that line that you gave me to read when we were doing the, uh, the thing about Discovery coming in, getting rid of the um, Klingon ships and then cleaning out. Yeah. They're a Starfleet ship. They went in to rescue the miners. Yeah. And they left them there. They left them there. <laughs> All they what's did was the, blow up the enemy. They didn't I mean, help anyone. What's to, what's to stop more Klingon battleships coming in and blowing them up? All the picks. Exactly. Uh, never mind the fact that there was no Federation starships within 84 light years of a highly important, vital uh, part of the Federation fuel supply system. Right, right. Um, yeah. No, I mean... I mentioned earlier about how it's great that they had the let's go save somebody trope, but the setup of that let's go and resolution of that yeah. was very badly handled, I thought. Yeah, so. I, I I guess in wartime, I suppose, I don't know why I feel like I need to take the devil, be devil's advocate no, it's good. or anything, it's good. but I feel like because they harp on the wartime effort and they've discovered this very new, very volatile technology in the spore drive and being able to jump anywhere. I feel like maybe what they're doing is trying to keep it a secret for the time being eh. until, until a later date. I don't know. I, that that's I, I'm, I'm going to hurt my back reaching for that. <laughs> no, I get your point. I mean, that, that might've been locus or the, the mindset of, because even the, 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 the mine, you know, the, the, the colonists were like, well, who saved us? And they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Um, so some yeah. ship appeared from out of nowhere. nowhere and, and, yeah. And so it disappeared it, just as fast. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, let's not keep, uh, you know, a valuable resource, a secret weapon in a place that the enemy can spot it and, and analyze it. Exactly. But, but just a line of dialogue that said, hey, if we go in, there's another ship coming that will be there like six hours after us or something to pick up any survivors rather than just like jump yeah. in, bang, jump out. What about us? Hey, yeah. you know. <laughs> so you know, you don't have any band-aids up there, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, that, that was just my few nitpick notes at the end at the end of my notes here. But uh I, I actually do want to say I was really surprised by this episode, and I was really surprised how much, you know, how many pages of notes I wrote going through it, how much there was to talk about it, how nuanced it was, how multi-layered it was. I was yeah. very going back and this has made me actually want to go back and rewatch Discovery from the beginning again, even yeah. though we're still 
rewatching DS9 and Voyager and, uh, you know, yeah. I'm waiting for the next stuff. Um, in terms of the new Trek, um, I'm loving the live action stuff. The Lower Decks is not my sense of humor at all, though I have, I have dipped in and out of odd episodes. I adored the DS9 episode. I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. It was um, and Prodigy, um, not really, characters haven't really hooked me yet, but maybe I need to give it another go. But, um, you know, the, the main ones, um, Discovery, uh, Picard and uh, Strange New World, I'm absolutely loving it. And the fact that we've got, you know, five new Trek. We never had as much Star Trek as we have now. So Yeah. Yeah, um, it's absolutely wild that we've got this much all at once. <laughs> and we've got access to everything else too. So you can, yeah. you know, it's just just crazy. Never in my wildest dreams I would think to have access to this much Star Trek and this much Star Trek to watch, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, you know, and uh, you know, everything moving forward with new Trek and revisiting the old, you know, uh, putting on maybe as a white noise uh, show, but putting on some TOS and putting on TNG and just, oh, wow. Look, look at the funny, funny you mentioned the white noise because I do a lot of traveling for business. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't normally like need stuff to get to sleep, but I was in New Orleans for a conference about three, four weeks ago. No, a couple of months ago, October. When was that? A couple of months ago. Back in October, (laughs) I was in New Orleans anyway. And my room was literally on the corner of Bourbon street. Oh boy. Um, with a guy like right underneath me playing away on uh, a stage that he'd set up on top of an RV, <laughs> but his electric guitar plugged in. He was pretty good, but it was getting late, and I was like, "Really?" Um, and I'm like, "I've got to get to sleep." And I'm like, "I'm going to try some white noise." So I actually put on one of those YouTube things of eight hours of the engineering section of the USS Enterprise. It's so good, isn't it? Bam! Knock me out, and it's like every business trip I've done since that, I put on the white noise of the Enterprise. <laughs> engineering oh, debt engineering I absolutely or, adore those or, or the and en- en- enterprise um bridge yeah i was gonna night. say whoever did uh there's bridge there's engineering i'm not sure if there's anything else but whoever whoever put those together yeah should be nominated for sainthood those are those are wonderful, wonderful so yeah that's when i travel now that's what gets me to sleep is eight hours <laughs> of white noise of the enterprise so yeah that's awesome well folks uh we have completed another year of the computer resume podcast congratulations (laughs) thank you so next week we will be joined by your executive producer and love of my life the beautiful and brilliant cat davis will be here to discuss discovery season one episode five choose your pain which is available exclusively on paramount plus alan where can people find things that you are working on and support you in those efforts so the easiest thing is to get uh, my website, which is alanjporter.com, where you find a list of, I do like a, a monthly like update, but you can also find links to all, all the places you can find me on the social media. You can also find links to the podcast that I do. I do a uh, part of a James Bond podcast network where I do three shows. I have my own Beatles podcast before they were Beatles. Nice. Um, and any links to any other shows like this awesome show that uh, I've just been a guest on. And you can find a link. You'll f- find my full bibliography there, our online bookstore through bookshop.org if you don't want to use the other guys. Um, so you can find all that stuff. And you can follow me on Twitter at Alan J- uh, on Twitter at Alan J. Porter, on Instagram at Alan J. Porter, and on Hive at Alan J. Porter. 
and I think I just got approved for post this morning so I don't know what I'm going to be on post but I'm going to get to set that one up too so you, basically if you just go to alanjporter.com you can find links to me wherever I am on the interwebs and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at Computer Resume Podcast thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in 10 forward Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?